The following production is part of the We Be Geeks podcast collective. This podcast is brought to you in part by the Pop Insider. The Pop Insider has all the latest in news, merch reviews, and other geeky goodness. Whether you're a wizard, a Sith Lord, or a superhero, fuel your fandom at thepopinsider.com. Microphones and headphones provided by CAD Audio. CAD Audio, expression through innovation. Produced with podcasting gear from Tascam. Trust your audio to Tascam. Sound thinking. Forgive the interruption, but I believe this requires your attention. Meanwhile, at the above-ground underwater suborbital volcano lair... This is urgent. We need a response team. We're already putting together the best move. With all due respect, sir, so am I. I have a plan. <laughs> it's real! Mighty Marvel Geeks. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Team? No, no, no. We're a chemical mixture that makes chaos. We're, we're a time bomb. Well then, son, you've got a condition. Your show about all things Marvel with Mike, Kylan, and Eric. What a bunch of losers. I am group. That I did know. These people may be isolated, unbalanced even, but I believe with the right push, it can be exactly what you need. And suit up. I'm bringing the party to you. I have indeed been uploaded, gentlemen, online and ready. And welcome to another issue of Mighty Marvel Geeks. It is the Intrepid Trio, we hope. Uh, Kylan, Eric, who will hopefully be joining us in progress. I have a bad feeling about this. And myself, Mike. Thursday, will you will you just take a chill? Just kidding. All right. Uh, also on the line with us, um, he, he can nod as I say this. Uh, we're going to say Marvel alumni? Or um, are you... I guess, yeah, you know, now that I think about it, I've never been asked that before. Because you're you're not currently with Marvel. No, not currently. But you do have have a long, rich history with Marvel that we're going to get into. Yeah. So Marvel alumni, Marvel artist alumni, uh, and that voice you just heard is Tom Rash. Or if we go proper, it was Rosh? Yeah, it was spelled spelled R-A-A-S-C-H when uh, I believe my great-grandfather came over to Ellis Island from Germany, and they took one of the A's out when he came here, so. My... My family last name is German-esque area. It was originally Prussian. Uh-huh. Uh, of course, I go to Europe, I'll hear the proper pronunciation. Or if I go to the Germany Pavilion at Epcot, where I work, I'll hear it. It's MK, but it's state-wise, it's MK. So I, I understand cool. your pain. <laughs> yes. Um, so that voice, is. we're going to go with the American version. It's Tom Rash. Yes. And... Uh, How's everyone doing? I know we've been chatting pre-show, but now we're recording, so we're going to put it out there. How's everyone doing tonight? Great. How about you guys? We're doing awesome. I am glad to be back at work. I'm Today, as we're recording, is my second day of my third week. So, yay, I'm happy. Cool. I uh, Actually, I'm, I'm buzzing a little bit because I... I, I got to watch uh, one and a half of the panels from Comic-Con. So even though it's at home, it's sort of like that geek New Year thing that we like to call yeah. it. So, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, 
I'm kind of I, I, I almost wish Comic-Con, for everyone who signed up for the virtual, that they would actually send you a hard pass just to commemorate San Diego Comic-Con at home. You get your own laminated pass. But I you know you a can, fantastic idea. Yeah, you can print one, but I mean, I don't know anybody else, but really like now, I don't have a printer, and I certainly don't have access to a laminating machine, but I totally would do it. See, I, I could get access to a laminating machine. It just wouldn't be the right size. <laughs> Ah, because I would shrink it down to for what I sent you for uh, for our shows. True, so. true. Um, but getting back to Tom, we we go off in different directions all the time, Tom. So no problem. Feel free to no feel free to join us on that. Well, I, I uh, was going to say when yeah, in a moment we can return to the to, to the Comic Con discussion about San Diego Comic Con. I have a couple of thoughts about that. So okay, all right. Uh, but before we get there, I want to hear more about your current project, Black Alpha. Well, uh, Black Alpha is a character and concept that I created as an 11-year-old in fifth grade, um, and I'll try and make this brief. But uh, I've been into comics and nerd culture since almost as long as I can remember, around four or five years old. My mother is a wonderful artist, and I used to copy her pictures when I was a few years old and start copying what she drew. And I just had a natural passion even then for drawing. And so as I got a little bit older uh, on television, the first things I saw were Spider-Man, the old Spider-Man cartoon with the yep. jazzy theme, um, the Adam West Batman TV series, and also yeah, Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. So those right around the same age was my first induction into nerd culture. I was immediately madly in love. Uh, that's never left me. And so between that, just enjoying those things and then enjoying watching cartoons on television and watching Star Trek and syndication, I also was getting into comic books at in early grade school years, and I, I would start to draw most of the major characters that we're aware of. And that continued for years. And then um, right around fifth grade, I, I had an epiphany of what I wanted to do with my life. The previous, the previous goal was to be a starship captain because I thought by the time I'm an adult, we're going to have big starships flying around. That's what, I, that's what I'm going to do. Everyone else said, you know, firemen and policemen. I'm like, no, starship captain. But as I got a little bit older, I'm like, well, that may be a little longer out, you know, out than I think. And so <laughs> I started thinking about um, you know, comics and movies, and I was really interested in how were these things created. And so I started um, paying attention. John Byrne was my first rock star idol when he was doing Iron Fist and then making his way over to like Marvel Team Up and X-Men. He mm. changed my life. That's one of, I have like at least a dozen different things that were like a crossroads. And seeing what he did um, kind of gave me this notion that someone actually gets paid to draw comic books. And so between that and then also I wanted to write and direct films, I was like, well, I don't think I'd have what it takes to swim with the sharks in Hollywood. I, even then I was getting a notion it was a real tough business. So I decided I wanted to draw comic books. But also around this time, I started doodling my own characters. And uh, I don't know if you guys remember the man called Nova, uh, yeah. the character Rich Ryder. I was around when that came out. And I just I was so that I was swooning when that first issue, because I'm like, this is like Spider-Man, but it's kind of like Star Trek. You know, it, it, it's space. Yeah. And it's a superhero. So that also had a profound impact on me. And so right around that time, I decided to kind of do my own version of Nova. And I wanted to do a space hero and I wanted him to have superpowers and I wanted him to have a cool spaceship like the Enterprise. And so that's kind of the notion. And the Black Alpha probably came from Space 1999, Alpha, Moonbase Alpha. Um, yes. And also kind of sounds like Black Adam. That could have been a subconscious influence. But that's the name that stuck. And I haven't been able to change it. There were a couple of times as I got older, I'm like, you know, that's kind of a dumb sounding name. That's what I thought as I was being kind of hypercritical of myself. But I couldn't find anything else. And so I left it that way. And, and I would tell myself, you know, if you sort of really analyze what we know in pop culture, Batman, anything Star Wars, we're so used to them being said that I think they sound cool. And so I kind of got rid of the embarrassment and said, well, if I say this enough, I'll get used to it. And um, 
and and ironically, even back then when I was a, a shy art nerd, um, didn't have a lot of friends growing up in grade school and junior high, I spent a lot of the recesses by myself humming what music to a Black Alpha movie would sound like. I fantasized about doing interviews, uh, about being toys and cartoons. And so in this current age, within the last 10 years, it's been an option for Hollywood to be a film and TV project three different times. Um, I have merchandise made of it. Uh, I've ha- I have had merchandise of Black Alpha that's been on numerous episodes of The Big Bang Theory. Um, no way. Yeah, yeah. It, awesome. A lot of it's in Raj's apartment, and the other stuff was in the comic book shop set. So there's posters, yeah. and, and there's like a model of Black Alpha ship right above a TIE fighter in Raj's apartment. Um, there's posters okay. of Black Alpha. And I actually sent the cast, because I had T-shirts made, and uh, Jim Parsons, you know, Sheldon and Galecki. Um, yeah. Actually, I sent them sizes, and those never got used in the show, but everything else was. I had to sign a, an agreement with, with uh, CBS, and so those were numerous episodes. And then right around that same time, Black Alpha was also published in USA Today um, as an online comic. Okay. Wow. And okay. so since so since that time, like I said, I've also been talking to Hollywood, and even that is still currently going on, about them wanting to make uh, a Black Alpha project. One of the times it was option was for a live-action movie for $80 million that fell apart. The other two times it's been optioned to be like an animation, either a feature film or a TV series. And um, and so uh, it, it can be a bit of a roller coaster for me because even though I've had the character in the public eye now for several years and there were things that kind of immediately took off for me personally, it's been it's been around a little longer than Star Wars. So we're talking almost half a century of believing in a character that I created as a young boy that's still in my life where I'm still trying to push those goals of things I fantasized about as, as a kid right. in the 70s. Because I, I tell people, um, well, in the pitch, like, and this is what was mentioned in the USA Today article, is I'm like, Black Alpha is what if you took the Batman story, you sprinkled in some Iron Man tech, and you dropped it off in the middle of Star Wars. And uh, and I kind of okay. realized, realized that since the first things I was introduced to at the same time were science fiction and superheroes equally with Star Trek and Batman and Spider-Man. That's, I think, what sort of molded my initial passion for combining those two genres um, that I've loved so much. And that's what I've been trying to push. And then also, I actually have another character, an African-American, kind of an Indiana Jones called Salem Tusk, which I created when I was a 16-year-old. And we're also developing that as a movie with a former WCW wrestler and a guy that's been on The Walking Dead. Okay. Um, And I also have producers looking at three of my other IPs that I've also created through the years. So that's kind of what my main goal of now is to sort of get my projects off the ground as, you know, in the multi-platform age is, you know, cartoons, movies, video games, toys, etc. Now, are there physical copies of Black Alpha out there or is it just all digital? Well, I have a self-published copy. Um, The the snag, which has been going on now for a number of years, is that, uh, you know, because of how busy I am with the day job, I'm a new father. Um, On a side note, I'm actually having a documentary film made about me that's about that. About trying oh, to pursue. sweet. Yeah, we, we got some of it filmed and we're going to rec- uh, reconvene filming in August. But it's about me, you know, what my goals were, especially because I want, you know, one of my dreams was to draw for Marvel. And and I had people asking me like 10 years ago if I was doing comic books and I had migrated over to video games because at the time there was more steady income. The money was better. There were benefits, etc. A lot of my friends that were doing comics migrated over to video games. And so I was thinking to myself, I'm like, well, as I got older, I mean, and people don't realize this, but drawing comic books is one of the hardest jobs on the planet, especially a penciler, because it's so labor intensive and you don't really get a nine to five schedule. And as I got older, I'm like, well, if I want to return to doing comics and I don't begrudge anyone who's their dream to draw Spider-Man or Batman or anything. But I'm like, if I'm going to re try and get back into this, I'd rather put my energy into my own worlds and my own stories, my own creations. 
And um, that's partially what sort of, and it kind of, I re-embraced the goals that I had as a kid. And so, so that's what kind of set me on the current path. And, um, and I've made a lot of great contacts. A lot of this has been through social media, like Facebook. Um, Steve Joyner was how we connected, and that's how I met him yes, was on Facebook. And so it's been very beneficial. Um, a lot of my projects have taken off or have been optioned for TV movie development by people seeing what I'm promoting on Facebook or discovering it online. So that's been a very, very huge beneficial tool for me. And I've just kind of decided that that's going to be my life's goal. And as I get older, getting back to the documentary, it's about, um, you know, having one goal and how that's morphed through the ages. And now that I have a daughter, a young daughter at my age, and I, I tell people I'm like, I'm old enough to be my daughter's grandfather. So I'm sort of her dad and grandpa all rolled into one. And uh, the legacy that I want to leave for her is to kind of never give up, no matter how long it takes. Be a good dad, but also remember, you know, there's a roller coaster when it comes to having lifelong ambition. And as tempting as it may be sometimes when things don't work out the way that you hope or plan, to still hang in there and uh, keep your head in the game. And so that's really the theme and narrative of the documentary that this filmmaker is making about me. And that's partially it's kind of a awesome. gift and a legacy to my two year old daughter, too. Awesome. awesome. I'm a little further ahead in the game, fatherhood-wise, than you are. My daughter is 10, but again, a you know, late start, just like you did. So, I mean, I, I feel your pain. Well, interestingly uh, enough, but, oh, go but ahead. It's a, but it's a good time for for. I, I feel better having her later in life because then I could. I feel like. I, there's better life lessons for me to teach mm-hmm. oh, yeah. as well and a better yeah. legacy to leave her. Yeah. And I think that, you know, hopefully your disposition is a little more even tempered and, you know, less volatile and less, you know, being distracted when you're a younger person. And I'm not, I'm not saying all younger people that are parents right. live their life with their kids that way. But I think that the maturity level of where you could be, you know, for some is a bit of a challenge, but I was going to say the interesting thing is Trish and I, uh, we have raised Aria to be a nerd since she was in the womb. And the very first day we brought her home, we had on Star Trek. And so Ari ah. was really attracted to the primary colors of the Starfleet uniforms. And so even though she's two years old and Trish does a fantastic job of working with her on her numbers and shapes, but also how to speak, Ari can, Aria can already tell you all the major characters in Star Wars. She can tell you all the major characters in Star Trek. Um, she has all the action figures of the Marvel and DC superheroes to go along with the Disney princesses and, um, you know, Elmo. So, yeah. so as she's gotten her and she really loves Spider-Man right now and um, uh, Superman and Captain America. So people will ask me, they're like, well, have you introduced them to your characters like Black Alpha? Because I have a plushie made of Black Alpha that I had made for her oh. when she was several months old. And, uh, and we just got one of the 3D prints of Black Alpha Spaceship. And she doesn't know the name, but she refers to both of those as Dada Spaceship or Dada Toy. And so I, I said, cool. I said, I never want to be one of those kind of parents that's like pushy with my material to say, well, this is dad. You need to like this. So I've been letting her discover it on her own. And it's really been fun to see her where she does identify these characters aren't Batman or Spider-Man, but she knows somehow they're affiliated with dad, which is kind of a fun feeling. Right. And, and obviously, you know, if any of my projects, I shouldn't say if, but when my projects go somewhere, you know, one of the legacies that I want to leave for her. When, uh, you know, when I leave this this mortal plane is to kind of leave my characters for her like an estate that she could possibly run when she's older, you know, and, and benefit from it in a number of ways. Right, and uh, right. so, I mean, they are kind of a gift to her, too. You know what I leave behind. Mm-hmm. Well, you'll, you'll appreciate this because it's the same way of not forcing. Um, when my daughter was born, uh, she was born on, in 98 in uh not 98, in 2009, mm-hmm. on a Friday, of course, Clone Wars was popular at the time. So yeah. she's only been out of her apartment, hurt the womb for 12, 14 hours, and she's sitting on my chest asleep 
which was fine, but she's on my chest as I'm watching Clone Wars. So she never had a chance. And then uh, a couple of years ago, Kylan, you know this story because I told you, yeah. and you know where I'm going with it. Uh, I had come home from work late that night, uh, the night before. So the next morning they went to wake me up and uh, I hear my wife go, it's okay. You could tell him he's not going to get mad. I'm like, get mad about what? She goes, daddy. I'm like, yeah, got something to tell you. Okay. <laughs> I never, I had no clue where this is going because she's too young for where the conversation could have gone. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. She goes, I love Harry Potter more than I love Star Wars. Ooh. I still love, I still, <laughs> I still love, I still love Star Wars, but I love Harry Potter more. I'm like, as long as you're true to yourself, that's all I care about. And in my mind, I'm going, but she still loves Star Wars. Exactly. I'm still doing good. <laughs> but she she has come into her own and was able to make that decision. I'm like, okay, I have raised her right if she knows. But I'll, I'll pick her up from school on my day, you know, when I'm be off during the week. And it'd be so how was school? Good. I had to put some boy down because he thought he knew more Star Wars than I did. Oh, well, yes. I'm like, <laughs> what, what do you mean? Uh, this boy said, I don't know. I don't know enough. Or, I can't. There's no way I can know more about Star Wars because I'm a girl. So I challenged him to name characters. All he can name was Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. <laughs> and I turned around and said, well, what about the Stormtroopers? What about Princess Leia, Han Solo, Chewbacca? And rattled off like 15 names. I'm like, yeah, you won. <laughs> yep, broad Papa moment for sure. And then, and then she did the same thing with, with Marvel and DC characters, too. With the, Oh, you can't like DC and Marvel. You're a girl. She's like, well, how many characters can you name? <laughs> I'm like, okay. Well, I was going to say, you you know, when when you've alluded to kind of, you know, maybe the closeness in age that we have, um, it's been really interesting to see, especially I'd say in the last 20 ish years, how much both genders, not just a boy thing, but girls now too love the superhero movies and they love sci-fi and fantasy a lot more than they did when I was a kid. I mean, and if there were some girls, they never, they never admitted it. It was very much kind of a boy's sort of, I guess, demographic and market back then. So it's been really cool to see everybody, you know, old, young, female, male, whatever, you know, you happen to be just kind of really appreciate nerd culture and how much it has kind of overtaken pop culture, mainstream stuff. Yeah. Well, I think, I think for me with all that, it was growing up as a kid, I didn't, I didn't, just like with Legos, I didn't see it as a, oh, it's going to only be a boy thing or a girl thing. Um, I mean, because cause I had the Mego, Mego dolls, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all the superheroes. Mm-hmm. We go over to a friend's house, they had Barbies. Well, guess what? A superhero, you know, and I had a Wonder Woman. I had Isis. I had mm-hmm. Catwoman because they were part of the superhero genre. Right. Yeah. You know, you couldn't do things. You know, I had Batgirl. You couldn't recreate what you saw in the cartoons if you didn't have those characters. Right, right. Now, eventually when Star Wars came out, yes, I had Princess Leia. But um, I go over to a friend's house, I take my Mego dolls, well, here's Batman flirting with Barbie. Who exactly. cares about Ken? Yeah. Ken's, Ken's not making enough money to hang out with Batman because Batman's Bruce Wayne, multi-millionaire. Right. <laughs> Right. So I will say this, speaking of the Mego, the Mego dolls, and we call them dolls back then. I know yes, we did. is the preferred term, but um, now they're collectibles. They're there's <laughs> such a charm to them because I know nowadays with the scanning and the printing technology and et cetera, there's some amazing action yeah. figures that are based on the likenesses of the actors that play the characters, et cetera. Just the amount of detail that look phenomenal. But for me. Those Mego action figures, because that's kind of what we had. That's what was available. Will always have a special place in my heart. And um, and for me, the first Mego actually character I got was Captain Kirk. And and that one my parents refused to buy for me when I was about first or second grade. 
So that's when my quasi entrepreneurial spirit kicked in. I'm like, you know what? If they're not going to buy this for me, I'm going to. And and I think it was four fifty at the time, four dollars and fifty cents. Yeah, yeah. And, and I decided to go trim hedges in my neighborhood yard for twenty five cents a yard for that entire week, so that I could earn my four dollars and fifty cents because I was. Damn the torpedoes. My mom was going to take me to that Gibson store to buy a Captain Kirk, and I did. Oh, wow, Gibson. And then, and then after that, you know, I started getting the other. But then quickly after that, I also started getting the Marvel and DC superheroes. So I mm-hmm. love Mego, and I always will to this day because, you know, <laughs> I mean, there's some questionable choices. They, you know, like I think uh, Conan had like a bodysuit yeah. that went along with his. Yeah. 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 You know, but or Hulk, those kind of. But Hulk did didn't. Too. Oh yeah, no. yeah. He just had the pants, right? He just had the pants. Uh, Captain America didn't have his buccaneer boots, and I don't think he had the gloves either, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think. He did. Uh, no, I don't think he had the gloves. He he didn't have the buccaneer boots, but he did have red boots. Yeah, right. and so and so you know that little that nerd part of me that has so particular about details. I would just sit there and go, okay, well, they're not like what I see in the Jack Kirby version in the comics, but he's got red boots, works for me. So I'm basically sitting there going, you know, that was just magic to me, you know, especially in those early grade school years. And then then there's Iron Man, staying with Marl. (laughs) Iron Man Uh, looked nothing like anything from the, oh, I just got super low for a second. I caught myself. I wasn't bad Um, on my end. I I heard echo in the house. If my wife was still up, she would go, you're loud. Um, But Iron Man looked nothing like the comic book character. No. Uh, Head-wise and whatnot. It's like, uh, okay. <laughs> I, on a side note, speaking of that, as a kid, because I tried to figure out how Iron Man's armor worked as a kid. I tried to figure out kind of the physics of it. Mm-hmm. And so I would fantasize even back then in the 70s, like if they ever make an Iron Man movie, are they going to have to use like red and yellow rubber? Because, you know, like it was supposed to be metal, but he was drawn like it was, you know, cloth material. Right. Right. And it's not like the current Addy Granow version that's been, you know, the Robert Downey films. So I remember even then going, how is how are they even going to be able to make that possible? You know, I just I couldn't wrap my head around some of the somehow they were going to basically take the approach to the material because it seems so incredibly complicated. And of course, that's what I love about our modern age is that, you know, the effects caught up with that world and found numerous fantastic way to do all those characters. You were not well, you authorized remember. to access this area. Whoa, 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 Thursday. He is authorized. That's Eric. Don't be a schwaffle tonight, Thursday. <laughs> I'm not a schwaffle. Well, you remember so, the thing so, also had a body suit, too. Yeah, yeah. Which didn't make sense. If they were able to do the, the bulkier body for Hulk, why couldn't they do that with the thing? Exactly. And make it more rigid. But, um... So, so we discussed Black Alpha. Uh, you said, where, what's the website that people could get your self-published copies from? And, and I, I'll ask this again at the end of the show as well. Well, I, I will have to admit this. Um, Facebook has become my prime marketing tool, like I mentioned. So I pretty much okay. send everyone to the Facebook page for now. Um, they, and, and also my, my Tom Rash Facebook. And I, I was going to say, by the way, all three of us should become Facebook besties tonight if, oh, you're, if you're on Facebook. I, I think I sent you a friend request and you haven't responded yet. Um, that's because I'm normally out at the 5,000 capping limit. Ah. <laughs> so, but I always, like when I know people, I end up having to eliminate a couple of robots or the inactive accounts. So you guys should gotcha. resend it and I'll keep an eye out for it. But uh, I spent yeah. a lot of my time um, doing my prime uh, promotion and marketing on Facebook. So any of my projects, I tend to send them to Facebook. I did have a Black Alpha website at one time. Um, I think the domain expired on that, but I am looking at, redoing it because i mean there's some things that i haven't announced to the public yet but 
new news that'll be coming up. And one of them is Hollywood related. Um, oh, sweet. So, and I shared my headshot, what is supposed to be, you know, shared in the trades like Deadline Hollywood and Variety here right. down the road. And um, that's one of the things that's been fun for me is that through this, for, especially for the last several years, I've had obviously my family, but very good friends that I've known since I was a kid. But even even the new relationships I found on Facebook have been such a great cheerleader kind of for what I'm trying to do. And, and, and most of them have not given up on me, which I'm very grateful for, because like I said, there's been a lot of peaks and valleys in this journey. Right. But, um, but, you know, I know one of the questions is because I, I have a publisher speaking of Black Alpha. So I did I did the uh, self-published first issue. I found a publisher and they don't want to solicit getting it in previews or any of that stuff until I have the three other issues done. So I've been looking at this for quite some time, and I'm probably going to end up having to do a Kickstarter. Uh, there's been some behind the scenes why that hasn't been launched yet, but we're trying to get those cleared up so that I can actually hire a, an artist or team, help me finish up the three issues so we can finally have it done. Because um, I, I made the mistake, and, and I'll admit when I make mistakes, because a lot of this, as I, as I learned as I went along, is I figured, well, because a lot of times I had interest in the cartoon and movie stuff first. Right. So I figured when I would get option money from, ha you know, I'll just go ahead and use that to do the comic. And a lot of times um, for anybody on the audience, you know, option money is usually when you have like a book or a comic and a studio decides they want to make a, a movie or TV project. The bigger studios will actually give you what is option money for a different fee that takes it off the table so that they can spend six months to three years trying to get this thing produced. Mm -hmm. Um the companies that I've dealt with were a little more on the independent side, so they didn't really have the serious money to give me option money. But, you know, there were other perks and I was supposed to be an executive producer on the TV movie, et cetera. So that money didn't really come through. And so I've decided that uh, even and I've been like I said, I've been through this now a number of times that I don't get too excited about Hollywood stuff, probably until I see that first check coming and until it's in the theaters or it's on television, because, you know, this can happen to a number of projects. People don't realize that. So when you actually see something getting made, it's quite honestly a miracle it got in front of us and, uh, as an audience. And some people have been incredibly lucky, like winning the lottery, where things moved along fairly quickly. Because, I mean, there's obviously two movies and TV shows based on books that have been around for decades that things finally kind of synced up for that thing to kind of finally right. happen. So anyway, getting back to Black Alpha. So I've been I've been sharing, you know, when the Hollywood news has come, you know, there's tons of material like I've done because I've worked also as a concept artist in video games. So I have tons of development like classes of planets and star maps and all the different classes of ships and all the character designs that I, people can access on my Facebook page. And then I get like kind of immediate interaction with the audience through my Facebook page. And so that's why I sort of kind of almost forgot about having a website for it. But I know people have asked, well, where can I buy work? And because we're actually I'm talking to some people right now. We're actually going to get a ship model made, made a Black Alpha ship, which is called the Aramis 7, uh, hopefully within the next year, an actual model kit. People have been asking about that for years. And in wow. a side and a side note about how nerdy I am, um, I become very good friends with Chris Hunter, who is the son of Jeffrey Hunter, who played Captain Pike and yeah. the Star Trek pilot. And him and I have been very good Facebook friends for several years. And every time I share a post to Black Alpha's spaceship, uh, Jeffrey Hunter's son is always going, I want that. If I was in Burbank Models, I would buy that. You know, so I've been getting kind of a sort of royal nerd endorsement from him. But also my friends who work at Disney, you know, I have a friend who directs uh, television for Disney, wants a copy of the model of Black Alpha ship. You know, so I've been getting support also from people in the industry, producers and 
So it kind of makes me feel like my instincts are right, you know, even though like the suits, the people that are in charge haven't been able to like green light it forward. So I have to kind of, so I said, I have to keep my head in the game and still figure out ways to get the story out there. Cause I've had a lot of people fall in love with the concept or look right. at the visual stuff and they're well, like, well, I haven't even read the comic and it looks cool. I will now say, I will add podcaster to your list. I would love to get a model of, of the ship. Well, well, trust me that I will definitely, like I said, all three of us can become Facebook besties tonight and you'll be I, able to see it, all I, the stuff. I did add, I, I did cancel my request and resend you resent the request as you were talking and i just sent two so okay cool and actually uh, friends uh with actually somebody that i know personally and somebody that we've had on the show uh a couple years ago mike gustavich oh yeah yep. yeah. yeah mike was a great interview as well yeah now um, by the way hi eric <laughs> <laughs> I just felt bad because I've seen him sitting there and I didn't really like any make any formal introduction yet. So, so you're you're Trish, you're, you're in Facebook as Trisha's hubby, right? Correct. Okay. Well, that makes all three of us sending it. There we go. Good deal. <laughs> now, I went so looking for I, I went looking for the trait because I'm a I, I mean I love individual issues, but I was looking for the trait and I'm like, why can't I find a trait anywhere? But you answered all those questions, so I appreciate that now. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, that can be a whole other subject sometime. But you know, um, comic like I said, comic book tr- production is way more labor intensive. I've said before than people realize. But I think when you're an independent creator, mm-hmm. it is a journey not for the faint of heart because. You know, you don't have the resources that Warner and Disney do with still pumping out, right. you know, having the money to get the the books created on a timely basis. And um, I think, you know, there was a time that I was a little worried about going the Kickstarter route because people have been bringing that up for at least a few years. And I'm like, well, what if it doesn't meet its goal? You know, does that sort of sully the brand? Because, you know, then you'll have people go, oh, well, you must not have as big of a following to get this thing off the ground. I've seen some great quality projects on Kickstarter that should have landed, stuck the landing and they didn't. Um, right. So, but I, I just, go ahead. That's why I was going to question why Kickstarter and not Indiegogo, which even if you don't meet your goals, you still get whatever was donated. Well, there's a bit of a, there's a bit of a, I'm trying to think that you're sort of in a, a, a rock and a hard place with that one, because like, let's say your goal is $5,000. Right. And you end up managing to raise 500 to 1000 Mm-hmm. but you almost have to come up with the rest to still complete the project because the people that did donate the money, they're going to want the rewards and they're going to want whatever that perk is, which is to get your book off the ground. Right. So that's why I've decided, I mean, I'm not against, because I know I've also seen certain well-known comic creators actually do both. They started with a Kickstarter and with an Indiegogo, were able to raise kind of what they needed between the two to get the project completed. But uh, I'll probably start Kickstarter <laughs> Kickstarter first. <laughs> Uh, sorry. That's for that's for that's for projects that stink. <laughs> exactly. There, there. Sorry, that's a, that's bad a joke. good label. That no, that's bad a good joke. label right there. Somebody should start actually be <laughs> using that as a meme. I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to support that kick farter. So yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I, that's probably the route. Because like I said, even with this Hollywood news brewing, I guess I feel like I owe it not just to myself, but also the people that have been along on this ride to. Um, to kind of get content out to them, you know, because it kind of becomes vaporware. And I don't know if you guys have ever heard that term, but it's basically like uh, it's come from the video game industry. Like there'll be certain projects that get announced and then there's just delay after delay after delay why it doesn't get completed. So it really starts to sour with the audience. That's been after a while, they just feel like, well, it's it's air, it's empty air. It's it's like, you know, it's like a vapor. It means nothing. And I don't want what I'm doing to get to that level, even though sometimes I would understand why. Right. And in the end, I just, and you know, the thing is, too, is that um, this is a bad reference. But the world that I created behind Black Alpha was very much inspired, not just by Batman, but also 
Star Trek and Star Wars. So I had this huge universe behind, like as the kind of mythology behind the main lead character. And so I, like I said, I've got like different classes of star systems and different factions of characters and the politics of the villains and the heroes in this association he belongs to. You could do tons of spinoff material about it. But that's partially what I think has scared off um, certain people in Hollywood because then they're like, well, this thing is too big. It, the, the budget would have to be enormous to do it properly. And so it's kind of like the comic. I can do some of that stuff with the right resources right. of, you know, referencing. Right. And and I'm still going to do like a sort of out of the rule book of Star Trek and Star Wars where, you know, as we were younger, I missed the days when things were referenced by a main character and your brain had to fill in the blanks. Like when, when Obi-Wan is telling Luke about the history of the Jedi Knights' exposition in the original film. I love that my brain started to formulate all that stuff. Or like with Star Trek, I love knowing there were other starships out there with other crews, but we were with Kirk and Spock. And I, I sort of do that with my characters where there'll be things like that may never ever be seen in the comic or a movie or cartoon, but the characters will reference it or, or like a saying or a phrase or the history of anthropological history of a group of people that that I want to use that. And I think that that's how your your audience starts to really become invested because you're able to kind of they're able to sort of fill in the blanks. But then you have these numerous cultural references that the audience, I think, sort of becomes part of the club. Right. You know, it's no different than live long and prosper or may the force be with you or, you know, even the Harry Potter stuff or Hunger Games that that those fan bases love right. knowing that there's a phrase that they themselves can relate to that they feel kind of that exclusivity maybe that's the word of of that universe and so um, I've taken that as as a fan but also as a pro to sort of create the passion of what I love and I think that when huh. you look at even getting back to this as I know this is a Marvel podcast. But I think even with what Stan Lee did, and maybe none of us realized it, but he was such a great ambassador for comics and for Marvel that I think uh -huh. that that's what he did without us realizing it. But he kind of made us feel like we were personally connected to what Marvel was doing, right. what he was doing. And I think that as a creator, anyone who takes that approach is kind of striking gold because I think that's where you realize that your audience will become loyal to what you're doing because they, they want to be a part of it in numerous ways. And so, you know, I take, uh, I, I've had different idols through my whole life, Stan, Stan and Jack, uh, John Byrne, but even like Gene Roddenberry, George Lucas have had such a major impact since I was a young boy that they all sort of really fulfill and kind of help me design the path of my life in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Well, since we are talking Marvel as well, uh, and, and don't get me wrong, I am still fascinated by um, Black Alpha, and I'm going to have to bring you on to Weeby Geeks so we can really go into depth. That's one of my other shows, mm -hmm. and I have a different co-host with that. We could just go into depth about all of this even more. Yeah, I'd love that. How did you get started with Marvel? And, and tell us about some of, um, if any, characters you were able to create yourself into whatever franchise you were working with? Well, um, I'll back up a little bit. So like I said, when I decided that I wanted to seriously become a comic book artist, I would snatch up and that comic scene was the other magazine. That was my Bible yeah. along with Starlog. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah. And, and I actually, I still miss the, the magic of like being a kid on a bicycle and going to the local grocery market once a month to pick up the newest issue of the Chris, Chris Claremont, Terry Austin, John yeah. Burnett's X-Men. And also I would do that when I would go by Starlog or go by Comic Scene. Anything that, you know, I, I like I said, I just completely devoured stuff on how things were created. And so with Comic Scene, there were a number of questions being put in there like, well, if you want to do this for a living, these are numerous ways you go about it. And so after reading uh, Comic Scene, I decided, you know, probably around 15 or 16 to start drawing the sequential art of what it took to draw comic books. Um, 
And then, you know, as I got closer into my late teens and early 20s, I knew that a lot of times other people who had made it tended to do it um, when the comic, the, the comic cons really started taking off. And so I had decided that um, I think it was the, the summer of 89 when Batman came out, because it took me a few years to really sum up the courage to say, I'm going to give this a shot. So I flew out to my very first San Diego Comic Con in 89. And I brought, uh, I made all the beginner mistakes that people warn you about. I, I brought stuff that was done in Magic Marker. A lot of it was pinup stuff. Um, I did try and do a four or five page sequential thing, but that was also on the wrong page size in Magic Marker. And I definitely, what is it that's saying that your, uh, your grasp is beyond your reach or vice versa? I was trying to do something very uh, kind of Watchmen-esque with the storytelling, thinking I was being very clever when, and in fact, it was complete garbage. But at the time, I didn't recognize that. So I, I was sitting there, and a lot of my line work was kind of dialed in. I had, like, pinups of Batman, et cetera. And I think, you know, when you're this naive kid, this this green person, you're like, once they see this, they're going to just sit there and go, wow, this is amazing. I'll sign you up right now. And so when I first got to my first uh, San Diego, and it was, that was in the old convention center before the one that's been in for so many years. And walking over there for me was Shangri-La. I mean, I actually crossed the street with Jack Kirby. Oh, wow. He was he was doing the crosswalk. And I remember just sitting there trembling, you know, not knowing what to say, thinking I shouldn't say anything. But that obviously that's locked in my brain. And then once I actually got into the to the actual area where all the artists were at, I tell people, I said, this was way bigger than movie, meeting movie stars for me. You know, just seeing all these names like Howard Chaikin and, you know, all the creators that especially in my teens and, and early, you know, well, I should say that the late 70s, early 80s, you know, they had such a profound impact on me. So I would see different people and I was so completely embarrassed to walk up to them, to to, to approach them and say, I love your work. And uh, and then I finally saw it. And, and this is a part that really makes me laugh because it's not like this anymore. You could actually walk up to either the DC or Marvel booth, which was no bigger than what these individual artists that now that, that promote their work at Artist Alley, where they have a corner that they buy off wow. probably for like a grand. That's how big Marvel in DC's area was. And you could pretty much walk up just cold calling those guys and get in line to have your portfolio reviewed within 15 to 20 minutes. Oh, so wow. I sat there and I had my portfolio with me and I happened to look over and see about three or four other guys ahead of me. And I'm looking over the shoulder and I'm going, wow, these guys are really good. And then I kind of lean in to hear what whoever was critiquing the work and they tore them to shreds. And I kind of sat there and went, holy crap, if they see my work, I, that's it. They're going to laugh me out the door. So I actually tucked tail and run that day the first day <laughs> and went back to my room and sulked. <laughs> So I completely wrecked my very first Comic-Con experience first day by just being completely terrified. So I ended up talking to a girlfriend at the time, and she said, uh, well, maybe tell them how far you traveled, because I let her know what was going on. And, and I was living in Rapid back then, too. And I said, well, maybe I will do that. So I decided to really sum up the courage. And the next day, I went up there, and I decided to approach DC first. And I'm actually friends now. Uh, Elliot S. Magan, who's written Superman books, I'm friends with him now. But back then, I didn't know him. And he was doing portfolio reviews. In fact, I reminded him of this a few years ago, and he got a good laugh out of it. So I walked up to him and I said, I'm Tom Rash from Rapid City, South Dakota. And he goes, yes, you are. And I could just tell by his kind of irreverent tone. I'm like, this is not going to go well. <laughs> so he sat there and he starts flipping through my artwork and he's just sitting there, you know, piece after piece. And he goes, uh, OK, where's the sequential stuff? You know, right away. So then, of course, I break out a cold sweat and I said, oh, it's coming soon. So then he sat there and he, he goes through the my four or five page Watchmen-esque brilliant thing I thought I'd created and kind of tore that to shreds. The storytelling didn't work and the camera movements and the placing didn't work. And some of the, the anatomy was really crappy. And then he, uh, he pointed out this Batman one that I'd done and he goes, why did you do this rendering on Batman's ribcage that way? And I said, well, because I'm trying to emulate the work of Terry Austin. He goes, yeah, we already got one of those. Next. <laughs> So, wow. well, and, and, and trust me, this this happens to anyone. Um, you know, Todd McFarlane has talked about he supposedly had 300 rejections before finally getting hired. 
So you have to kind of go through this. You know, you really have to have your feet to the fire. So I'm like, okay, cross DC off the list. And I decided to go up to Marvel next. I'm like, well, I'll go ahead and do the big ones first because I know I'm going to get shot down and I'll work my way to the smaller independent company. So the next up, I go to Marvel's booth. And at the time, Mar- Mark Grunewald, who was a pretty well-known editor to me, was sitting there munching on his donut. And I just said, hey, would you mind doing a portfolio review? And I remember him sitting there and he just kind of went, he's still got his donut. And he goes, so another sign, this is not going to go well, because I could tell I just annoyed him by interrupting what he's doing. So he sits there, same thing, goes through, and is just like, yeah, I don't know, this lady's arm is deformed. She has a deformed elbow. You're not ready for a Marvel assignment. So I'm like, check. That goes off the list. So then I started working my way down to, like, I think First Comics was around and Kamiko and some of those. And, and I pretty much got shot down by every single one of them. And I actually had an art director at First Comics told me, uh, not everyone is meant to do this, okay? So you might want to look into becoming a truck driver or something. <laughs> so, so, so that second day, I was shot down by everybody, and I still had, what, two days left of the Comic-Con. And, right. so I w- and I was terrified to tell my significant other that this was a complete and utter failure. So I decided to actually try and enjoy myself. The problem was, I, I, when I came there, I didn't budget my money. So when I got to Comic-Con, after paying for my badge and all that stuff in my room, I was flat broke. So I didn't eat for four days. So I snuck into the Comic-Con suite to have chips and dip. That was the only thing I was able to eat. But I was so enamored by seeing all the different comic industry celebrities that even then that didn't affect my stomach too much. And I just remember the rest of it just taking in saying, oh, there's so-and-so, there's so-and-so. And then they were getting ready for the big masquerade. So I still was really, really drawn into the magic of that world. Anyway, on my last day, I decided to uh, approach someone who I really admired, and Carl Kessel, who was John Burns' inker on a lot of the Superman stuff he did. So I walked up to him that day, and I just said, hey, do you have a time to take a look at my work? And um, I've never had a chance to let Carl know this. I probably will on Facebook, but he kind of saved me that day because the first thing he said to me was, man, your, your line work is incredible. He said, there's a lot of great instincts going on. He goes, have you ever thought about becoming an inker? And I was like, well, not offhand, but I do. I definitely enjoy the art of inking. And so he went through a list of stuff and told me the things I was doing right. And then he told me when it came to storytelling, he's like three to five panels, have to have an establishing shot, a close up, a medium shot, you know, one of the things with action, move your camera around, bird's eye view, worm's eye view, et cetera. And so he said, here, I'm gonna give you a couple names and why don't you go ahead and request to get some samples to be an inker? So I did that for both Batman and I got Norm Brayfrogel's pencils who unfortunately has passed on in the last couple of years. I loved his stuff on Batman. And then I got, I don't even, unfortunately I don't remember the artist, but they gave me some Avengers pages. So I went ahead and started doing all these, and then I, I did get them done. You can actually find the samples on my Facebook page. But what ended up happening was was that as I was doing the inks on this, I was going, you know, not that I don't appreciate Carl kind of maybe giving me advice in that direction, but I'm like, I've always wanted to be a penciler. And so what I decided to do was I never did send a lo- those inking samples. I went ahead and went back to the, literally the drawing board for two years, two to three years, and I'm like, I'm going to remember everything that Carl said, and I'm going to work on that stuff. So... I ended up meeting some friends in that time that also wanted to draw comic books. So we returned to Comic-Con a few years later. The three of us went and I brought ahead. I went ahead and fixed all those mistakes. I brought Xeroxes of my pencils. There was no pinups. It was all sequential stuff, a five page story that I made up that showed everything that we're looking for. Establishing shots, perspective, cities, a crowd shot, some action, et cetera, et cetera. And it didn't have an established uh, character in it, which I thought would work to my benefit because I know I've seen some guys that bring in a Spider-Man story and they get criticized by by the editor or whoever going, oh, this Spider-Man doesn't look right, right? So that's one, th- one thing they'll do to shoot you down. 
So I'm like, if I just make mine a general thing, a science fiction thing, kind of superhero, they'll get it. So I, the first thing I did was I repeated history. I walked up to DC and they said, who are you working for? And I said, uh, nobody. They said, we want to introduce you to Casey Carlson. He, he uh, edits Legion of Superheroes. Oh, snap. And so, but what ended up happening was I could never get a hold of him. And so as, as the story progressed that day, everyone that I talked to said, who are you working for? And that's how the whole weekend went. So all of a sudden I was kind of riding on cloud nine because it was a complete opposite of what I had faced a few years prior. And so long story short, I went ahead and got a lot of positive feedback and I got cards and uh, Coley Hamner. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Coley Hamner. Um, mm-hmm. I ended up going up because the other approach I took was I decided to do what I did with Carl Kessel and I decided to approach easily a dozen of comic book professionals and saying, would you give my stuff a critique? And after a while, they would be like, hey, man, your stuff's really good. You know, let me introduce you to my editor. And so Coley Hamner was really excited about what I did. And at the time, he was doing stuff for Malibu. And uh, he went ahead and introduced me to his editor. The editor gave me his card and said, yeah, um, you know, I got a lot to take home. Give me a call. Get a hold of me in a month or two. Remind me of who you are. I can definitely throw some work your way. So, so that uh, go ahead. So I want to ask, was that editor by chance Roland Mann? No, it was not. And I'm friends okay. with him, too, now, by the way. We, okay. We are, we are good friends with with Roland. Roland is awesome. Uh, no, it wasn't him. And, I, and unfortunately, I don't remember the name of the guy. But what here's, here's where the story gets a little funny. So and this is where I learned how this world, all of entertainment, can kind of go this way. So I was really excited. I decided, okay, well, I won't. I won't. Uh, call the guy and bug him right away. Well, then I did start calling him. I'd leave messages, numerous messages, never heard back from him. So that one to two months turned into a few to several months. So I was really despondent. And then my my roommate played a really cruel joke on me. He pretended to be the editor. He called our answering machine and pretended to be this guy. And so when I got all worked up saying, oh, the guy finally called me, he goes, no, I just did that. And of course, I, I was like, what is the matter with you? That is incredibly mean. What would you think was funny about that? Right. And of course, I could have strangled him, but you know, we were good friends. And and so I just decided, I'm like, well, I guess that's it. I, I guess whatever shot I thought I had, it isn't going to exist. And I couldn't get a hold of the other people that, that were giving me names to. So anyway, fast forward a few more months, and all of a sudden, I'm sitting and checking my voicemail, and I get a voicemail from uh, this is exactly I, I had it memorized. Hey, this is a message for Tom Rash. This is Mighty Matt Moore over at Marvel Comics, and I would like to talk to you about offering you a job. So my my roommate John gets home, and I said very funny. And he's like, what? I said, you left me another message, didn't you? He goes, no, I didn't. I said, come on. So I played it for him. And he goes, no, t- trust me, dude. He goes, that wasn't me. He goes, that's awesome. So I called Matt Moore up and he was working with Joy Cavallari. And so I got offered Punisher 2099. Oh, Great series to come in on. The unfortunate part, though, was that I kind of got in when the market was getting ready to bottom out. So mm-hmm. and and they even said they had big plans for me because, you know, um, you know, I, this is not like it's not like I'm divulging any great big secrets. But I mean, you know, some comic artists make barely livable wages. Right. And so like the standard starting rates back then for pencilers was about $80 a page. I actually got a letter from the editorial committee saying because of my style and where they thought things were going to go really big for me, they're like, we're actually going to start you at $125 a page. Wow. You know, and so and so and they sent me and, and I had a weird life then because I was also in a band on the road with my family. So while I was living part time as a rock star, I got I got to also draw my Marvel pages in my motel room. After we get done with a gig in the bar at 2 a.m., I would sit there and draw till about one or two in the afternoon and sleep for about four or five hours. Get ready, go to the bar, come back and do the same thing. And, uh, and, and I don't know what the age the age demographic is for your, your audience here, but I always tell people that there was a weird, very weird dichotomy for me because I'm like, I'm this really long-haired guy in a band. A lot of times guys in bands meet girls. They invite you to parties afterward. I actually had a girl try and do that. And, and I said, no. I said, I actually have to go back to my motel room and draw comic books. And she thought I was completely kidding. <laughs> she didn't believe me. 
exactly. And I think she thought I was making up, like, you know, I was trying to get away from her. And so she was very forward and said, um, can I come back to your room and watch you draw? And I was like, uh, that's kind of weird, I guess. So she, so she comes back to my room. And I'm sitting there getting out my my pages and my portable drawing table, and she proceeds to get naked. Wow! And I was and I said, "What the hell are you doing?" And I actually, I I made sure she got dressed. I kicked her out of my room because I told her, I said, "No, that, I'm not kidding. This is not a joke. This is my big shot right here." <laughs> you know. And so and so I'm like, "What a weird life I was living." Because <laughs> I'm like super nerd, a guy in a band meeting girls. They kind of didn't they didn't seem to go together. That. But uh, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> No, I'm just saying that is probably if it's not the the nerdiest thing that I have ever heard, it's in the top five, definitely. Because well, yeah, <laughs> you're not a bass player, are you? No, well, I sing and you know do for percussion, but but the funny thing was this was kind of a precursor. Was even when I got what was supposed to be my first girlfriend at 16, she called my parents' house 20 times a day, and I found myself getting annoyed immediately because I was trying to draw comics. That was more interesting to me, and so that sort of set the tone for many years. That I'm like, you know, you'll hear guys go. Well, I, I was into comics and then I discovered girls that never happened for me. That passion never went away. My love for comics never went away. Drawing, you know, the, the passion for drawing never went away. So so that's a story I enjoy telling because it's so bizarre, you know. And of course, uh, as I, you great. know, there's more guys I got to know in the industry. That's not uncommon. A lot of them, there's more than one artistic outlet that a lot of them are musicians. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Uh, actors and other things. So, I mean, they kind of go hand in hand. But anyway, long story short, I was so incredibly nervous when I started drawing stuff for Matt Moore and Joe Cavalier. I had to redraw pages three times. And they even wow. had to tell me, they were like, they said, relax, you'll get better as this goes along. And so uh, the, one of the stories that I did, I actually got to create a character for them, a new character for Jake Gallows, the Punisher of the 2099 line. Um, but that was my first taste of like, this is not something I own. You know, because you, you get these pay vouchers that when you when you get the script, and you draw, I mean, you know, you're so excited to work for the big company. You don't even think about, well, am I going to, you know, you're just like, hey, this is cool. I get to contribute something to, to this. So so what ended up happening was, though, is that, you know, um, I actually got, it was a card from Marvel right around April 1st. And it said the book was getting canceled. And I said, and by the way, this is not an April Fool's joke. And then shortly oh. thereafter, Matt Mora let me know that Marvel was letting him go. Joey Cavallari was moving over to D.C. Um, and Matt Mora tried to get me other work like on Vampirella and stuff like that. But because I hadn't really become a name, he had a hard time getting me gigs. And then not too long after that, I started to other guys because I continued to go to Comic-Con. And a lot of guys that were that were getting were steady work. We're not, you know, they never got to the level of like the superstars like Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld, Todd McFarlane, etc. Uh, you know, John Byrne, any of these guys, George Perez. But they were solid artists and they would get steady work because that they said they said even me getting work for years, I'm not getting work right now. And so I've had a couple of my best friends, the ones that I met that went to Comic-Con with me the first time that wanted to do comics. Eventually, they both got work done for like DC Comics and stuff, too. But they were already working in the video game industry. And they were telling me, they're like, Tom, you should totally you should totally try like getting into video games because they said the money is way better. You know, and they said there's just a number of perks. You, you tend to, you know, unless you're in crunch period, you tend to do eight hour days. And so that was a whole other thing because, you know, the same kind of thing like comics. And and this is something I try and tell people, I think because I, I learned a valuable lesson and like not personalizing what I was told my first Comic Con and working on the things that wanted me to get better. My story of actually getting hired by Marvel that second time is fairly unusual. A lot of people start with the smaller companies, work their way up that I kind of took it for granted. And also, too, I mean, this was during the, the image boom and, and hyper stylization was very mm-hmm. in, which I still love, by the way. So so there were issues about my work. Like I had the basics down, you know, the story, te- the, the panel layout. Um, you know, when I look at back some of it will work, it's a little wonky. But I think it was so stylized that that stuff was overlooked. And as I've gotten older and being a concept artist, I've tried to work on some of those issues like my anatomy and stuff, et cetera. 
But um, I think that that's partially what helped me get me in the doors. I had a very defined style, very defined line work, you know, and that was one of the compliments I got, even obviously with Carl Kessel, like, even if there's some weird stuff, you've got a really cool style, you know, th- that I would be reminded of, of Art Adams, a little bit of Michael Golden, which right. I was very flattered by because I'm like, well, I love those guys. As I've gotten older, sometimes I hear like Travis Charest, Joe Madreira, uh, Lena Liu, other guys that I admire that they see in my, my later work. But I think that's what kind of partially helped me was that I didn't have to go through. Um, and, you know, I see it, too, because I also became an assistant art director at a video game studio. So I have to look at people's portfolios and sort of have to go over why things are working and why they're not. And so when I see other people that are younger and I don't I don't step in, it's not my place, but I can kind of see now that I'm older what it is about certain art uh, when people are trying to do comics that kind of it's not quite dialed in yet. Some of it is they don't understand lighting and shadow and also just kind of how um, especially line work and rendering goes There's a very kind of certain certain science that goes with that that looks right, you know, because people can over cross hatch or all that material. Or, or they'll it'll, the, the, the detail will wash out because they don't understand some of the discipline and the science behind it. And the same thing with pencilers, you know, and I still to this day, um, there's 50 artists that I enjoy, you know, that I still somehow they'll find their way into my work and stuff. So anyway, so so like I said, you know, my time at Marvel wasn't kind of what it should have been. Um, but I appreciate it because, like I said, it almost kind of brought me back to where I'm at currently, which is as exciting as that was and could have been. I'm really living my bliss now, which is getting my characters out there. And like I said, there's, you know, if somebody came to me and said, we'll pay you a million dollars to do like your dream character, Star Trek or an IP Star Trek would be one of those. Um, and, and the one thing I will say about Punisher 2099 that I always really kind of wanted to do, I like taking um, second tier characters. Now, the Punisher himself obviously was very popular, you know, in the early 90s. But I liked having that a shot of taking something that wasn't as huge as Spider-Man or Batman and giving it my own personal stamp. That was the challenge was to say, how can I make this cooler? And that's something even Todd McFarlane has talked about numerous times. And so. Um, and I know there's guys out there that, you know, I, I'm always clapping for them. A guy just said, hey, I just got a gig on this, one of the really high profile books. And if that's them living their dream, I'm all for it. You know, but my dream really is getting my stories off the ground now. And and like I said, circling back around to uh, that kind of storytelling and that passion, because I can't help right. what I'm doing, because that's been with me since I was a kid. And and that's why I said, you know, um, having several characters being looked at by Hollywood. Uh, and, and this is something, too, that I consider the highest praise, like I said, with Jeffrey Hunter's son. Uh, several months ago on Facebook, he said it's like you're a combination of George Lucas meets Stanley because Ooh. because it's That's not even just about compliment. one thing. It's I've got so many characters just living in my head and most of them seem to have like a commercial kind of viability that, you know, I appreciate people and they're all different from each other, too. So, well, I will say from your your touring story story, mm-hmm. I, I think my idea for the title of this issue comes from that. And it's girls or comics before girls. There you Tom go. Rash. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I like that. And it fits. So, um, since we were talking Marvel, are there any Marvel titles now that you're reading or are you even doing much comic reading right now? Unfortunately, no. Um, a buddy of mine who also, like I said, he did some, some, uh, brief work at DC. We talked about it. Maybe it's because like you're, when you're, when you get older and certain, life's responsibilities it's almost like you really have to carve out time i still go to the store occasionally and buy books i get previews all the time because i just enjoy looking at all the books out there and the art um there'll have to be certain books that i'm like um especially if it's a pencil or someone i'm really a fan of like you know that i'll sit there and kind of commit to reading and there's so much out there too it's almost like that you get overstimulated trying to decide 
what it is you want to. And I'm, I'm that way with Netflix shows too or Netflix movies. I have a very small time carved out to myself when people like it took me forever to watch Firefly. And the only way that I was able to do that was I actually had that in the background while I was drawing and painting on the computer at one uh, of the video game studios I was at and became became an instant fan after being able to go even if I was only listening to the episodes. And so the same thing happens now where uh, certain shows I'll be like finally going, OK, I got a little bit of time. I'm going to sit there and, and binge watch whatever it is. And so comics are the same way, which kind of makes me sad because I don't get to read them the way that I did when I was younger, you know. Um, go ahead. Sorry. And let me let me pose the question. Then um, apologize to Kyle and Eric for almost dominating the questions, but they're good who, questions. Don't worry about it. I'm yeah, sorry, no. by the way, too, guys. No, no, you're you're awesome. Um, who, since you you've been focused on pencilers and inkers, who are pen, pencil, who are the pencilers and inkers that draw your attention now? Um, that one's kind of a tough one because I still I, I I sort of lump all of them together the ones that I enjoyed as a kid I mean I had my sort of holy trinity which at the time for me was uh, John Byrne Mike Grell love the Warlord yeah huge, huge fan also have become friends with Mike Grell as I got older um, yeah, I, I love Grell's uh, Longbow Hunters just yeah. well to me Green I, I love like Hunter. yeah I love the Green Arrow and I, but I also I was that's also when the the bug for getting your own because I love Star Slayer <clears throat> and I love the fact that the Warlord was his creation even though he didn't own the character. Uh, real funny side story, by the way. So I got to go up and meet Mike, Mike about Mike Grell about 10 years ago. And I actually copied uh, a double page spread out of the Warlord when I was about 16 year, years old. Mm. And I, I mean, I didn't trace it. I sat there and copied it. And so I walked up to him and I said, Mike, I would be honored if you'd sign this. And he looks down, he goes, you did this drawing when you were 16? Well, I said, yeah, but it's your work. And he goes, no, no, I don't care about that. He goes, you drew this when you were 16 years old. And I, I said, yeah. And he goes, you mother effer. He goes, you talented little mother, you know, that was a, you know, I like, that's another one of those where I was doing backflips, you know, and, um, and, but I, but yeah, for me, I, you know, when I get to meet some of these people, I grew up admiring and get to know them at personal level. I still sort of get that verklempt. I still get kind of nervous and I get sweaty palms, but I'm saying that, you know, Mike is fantastic. I, I've always been nervous about meeting John Byrne because I hear a lot of different stories about him. If you catch him on a good day, cool, not so much. So I didn't want to really kind of have that ruin it for me. And then Michael Golden, I was finally able to compliment him at uh, Denver Comic-Con several years ago. But I, I, I couldn't help myself. I said, you know what? And he was by himself. It was in the morning. I was getting ready to go to my table, you know, where I was promoting my stuff. And I just said, Mr. Golden, I know you hear this a million times. You were part of the reason I wanted to get in comics. And he smiled and shook my hand and said, thank you. So And I was able to walk away. I didn't sit there and bend his ear having a conversation or any of that stuff if i remember right michael golden did a lot of work on the marvel star wars line in the beginning he, he, he did he did he uh yeah. uh the stories that he did were fantastic but i mean i was yeah. introduced to him through the micronauts which i also loved yeah, you know as yeah. a kid but i was gonna say um I, what i loved about him was he wasn't uh he was you know it's hard to pin him down because you don't really hear negative stories about him you know yeah but he but he seemed a little more reserved and and you know that 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 was fine with me and so i'm saying those are the three that started my interest but then as i got older like i said there was people like howard shaken because i loved what he was doing on american flag of course dave mm. stevens when i first saw the rocketeer kind of changed my world too yeah. with that lush yeah. illustration um and then as i got older too i appreciate i still appreciate jack kirby to this day what he represents to comics as a medium in general and, and i tell people jack kirby's work i know some people have thought it was kind of blocky and ugly or whatever to me, Jack Kirby's work is the epitome of the comic book experience. It's like I can wrap that around myself like a warm blanket. It may not be as flashy right. as as the more modern guys or the guys that came after, but there's still something very powerful to me, the emotions that I get from it. And then, uh, you know, as I've gotten older, of course, the, a lot of the 
image guys I still admire to this day. You know, um, I know a lot of people like to bag on Rob Liefeld, but I will say this about Rob Liefeld. Um, I feel like Rob Liefeld and I are the same people, except we live two different lives. Like, you know, he, he grew up feeling the same way about pop culture like I did. We even kind of looked alike in high school. Um, he got his break before I did. But I will say Rob loves comic books. And like me, he's created numerous characters that he's just so excited about. And I respect the heck out of that. And yeah. he's still passionate about comics to this day. And I actually, I never really minded his stuff. I definitely enjoyed it when he was a big name at the same time, like Todd McFarlane, right before Image blew up. So I, I like his stuff. I love Jim Lee, uh, Mark Silvestri, even Todd McFarlane. You know, I like that hyper stylized stuff. But then there's also the more independent and the guys that are like kind of the, the draftsmen, you know, uh-huh. that, that I enjoy too. But I would have to say probably in the last 10 years, it's been Joe Madriera, um, Greg Capullo, but I liked his stuff even years prior. Love his Batman run. Um, Lionel Yu, like I said, you know, any of those guys that kind of seem to be like the kin of uh, Travis Charest, right. you know. Uh, and then I still discover new guys on Facebook every once in a while. And I liked a lot of the European artists too, like Mobius, anything European that kind of has a real fun flavor. So I'll, I'll, I'll have to stare you to a guy. He's a good friend of mine, was a uh, Lucasfilm artist and was involved in their webcomic during the Clone Wars, um, but also has his own uh, comic book that he's doing called, uh, oh shoot, I can't think of the name of it at the moment, um, something night, Midnight, there we go. Midnight? Uh, it's called Midnight. Uh, the artist and creator of this is a guy by the name of Tom Hodges. Yeah, I've heard of him, for sure. Yeah, and I... I like his styling as well. It's very similar to everything you were talking about. Um, gotta ask, because we're getting close to the end of the show. Kyle and Eric, you guys have any other quick questions before I hit the my standard wrap-up question? Uh, oh, no, I, 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 I got them stumped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've been a real big help this show. Thank you. <laughs> well, you know what, Eric? You have to me. <laughs> Yeah, I'm in the same boat as Eric. I mean, there, it's like the the your answers kind of lead to more questions, questions. which I know more answers, you- and so I'm just not going to. I'm just going to stay yeah. for. I, I will say that uh, I I did collect Punisher 2099 when it came out mm-hmm. uh, back in the early 90s, and I I, I kind of I. I I sympathize with with your situation because um, I worked in the comic book industry for for a while, uh, for a few months, and uh, it's it roughly about half a year. And I came into work one day, and they just said we're shutting down the company. What uh, and, What were you doing? Who'd you work for? I uh, worked for Dagger Comics, and okay. I was primarily a colorist. And all the stuff that I had been working on, uh, some of the stuff that I got that I worked on made it out, but most of what I was working on at the time never saw the light of day. And mm. and I'm just I. I the whole time you're talking about your your experience with Punisher, I was just kind of like, yeah, this is sounding vaguely familiar, and it just kind of makes me kind of makes me wonder, you know, what what your Punisher 2099 would have looked like. And yeah, I've, I've actually on my Facebook page, you can see some of the stuff that I did. Um, and like I said, there's there's a little bit of it that I look at that I enjoy still, and there's mm-hmm. other part of it that I'm just like, yeah, you know, this could have done better, but. I do think that, um, in fact, I've actually thought about doing this recently. I thought about doing an updated version of my take on that, on Jake Gallows. I would just love to see, to Just that. to see what it looked like with my current it. style. Because a lot of times artists, their style changes through the years. And um, my stuff has got a little sketchier because of what I did in video games. Because, you know, a lot of, like, I had to do really rough, loose stuff. Because I was such a very anal retentive about tight line work. And that, a lot of that comes from Mike Golden. To this day, his stuff is just phenomenally tight. Yeah. And I mm-hmm. still love it. And so my I used to gravitate towards... Um, 
at, at times it was a hindrance because it's almost like an OCD. Like if I didn't have a guy's eyebrow looking exactly correct with the rendering I was doing, I would go redraw that guy's eye and eyebrow three different times. And, and I had to learn after a while because one of my buddies had a great, great quote. He goes, do you want to have every panel be a masterpiece or do you want to tell or do you want to be a storyteller? And that was probably the best thing he ever said to me because he said, you know, after a while, you have to look at the bigger picture, which is if you're going to lose time redrawing a guy's eye and eyebrow, you'll ne you're never going to get comics done. And um, real quick on a side note, like Black Alpha stylistically is very different from what I normally do. Although I have done traditional comic book styles, but I, I decided to do it in an animated style because I did want to I wanted to speed up the process of doing less surrendering. And, and that was also a whole lot of other education because that turned out to be not entirely true. Um, you know what I mean? And I was also to sell it as a cartoon concept. So so and that's another thing that has worked in my benefit, even even as a concept artist. Um I can jump around on several styles easily. Like I can, I can give you something more independent, gritty. I can give you, like, if you came to me and said, try and draw exactly like John Byrne, I can try and kind of pull out his X-Men era, um, tr try and draw like Joe Madriera, you know? So I, I recognize styles and enjoy them so much. I can do kind of my take on them. The frustrating part of that is as you're trying to carve out your own style, it's hard to kind of find your own voice if you're able to mimic other people so much. Still something that I struggle with to this day, because people come up to me and say, I really love your style. But sometimes they'll see one thing and go, this reminds me of Travis Charest. This reminds me of Joe Madrera. Right. And I totally see what they're talking about, because that's kind of the look I was going for. But anyway, I'd like to do a modern version of Jake Gallows just to see and, and to pull it up compared to like my old work of, you know, because that's uh, <laughs> as scary as it is to think about. You know, that's almost 30 years ago. Wow. That's 27, 28 when I did that. And I'm going to be 55. So um uh Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's pretty crazy how quick that time goes by. But um, anyway, sorry. See, I, I appreciate you guys for because I can go off on long tangents. And I think these podcasts are made for me because I can talk about just about anything forever. We, we I will definitely be contacting you about getting you on Weeby Geeks. Unfortunately, with the way you know how Steve works, mm -hmm. he's got me booked all the way through on that show. He's got he's got me guests all the way through october 2nd let's give a shout out to steve too by the way great guy steve <laughs> awesome is awesome yep. steve is awesome Enjoy he's him. actually he's actually helping us try and get leah thompson on this show oh awesome that so, would be fantastic where can people find you online uh i'll say it again facebook is is the main i mean i have a twitter account there's a black alpha twitter account which you just type in black alpha b-l-a-c-k-a-l-p-h-a on Facebook, uh, there's a Black Alpha page, and then Tom Rash, T-O-M-R-A-S-C-H, and then Instagram. And unfortunately, Trish usually kind of runs both of those for me because um, one little side note that people don't know about me, I actually have a minor form of cerebral palsy, which affects fine motor function. So I can't type worth the darn. So everything is one finger pecking away. So people are like, they're like, well, how can you draw? And I said, I've always had a weird way of making that work. I have to anchor my wrist and my elbow a certain way. And, and I hold my paintbrushes and pencils funny. But I've trained my mind since I was a kid to make that work. So and it's not like I said, it's not like a major issue, but it does affect fine motor function. So that's part of, part yeah. of the reason I'm not on social media, like on Twitter and those things, constantly typing things in. And usually Trish ends up having to do that for me. Um, awesome. Yeah. So anyway, but that's but Facebook, like I said, you know, bad or good has been my primary conduit for promoting what I'm doing, because like I said, I do like kind of the instant uh, sort of the instant feedback you get from people about stuff. So and like I said, I'm constantly posting my art on there and I've had people say, well, you need to start an art page. I may do that, but it's like I get so many people on my page anyway. And I do think a lot of people appreciate that sort of instant back and forth, you know. Right. Um, and like I said, Black Alpha, I'll admit it's been a while since I've uh, put anything on there. It's only probably about 20, 2,400, no, 2,800 likes. And uh, I've talked to people recently that said I probably need to get that kind of that fan base up there a little more. And 
I, I guess to be honest with you, it'd be blunt. I got tired of Facebook telling me I needed to build my fan base, but then saying you need to promote and pay for this promotion. And supposedly, and I just, I, I think all and, that's baloney. And the promotion goes nowhere. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's just yeah. numbers they pull out. So I, I, I'll admit, I sort of probably was a little bit resistant, rebellious, and kind of was like, well, I don't really care, you know, because I, I tend to get, you know, like I said, I at least I know I'm reaching almost 5,000 people on my on my page, you know, to kind of follow what I'm doing. So, but yeah, that's that's it for now. And I do plan on getting a Black Alpha. Well, probably a Tom Rash page because I do want to sort of promote and sell, you know, T-shirts and other things too. Right. And then, and you know, another with, time. And, and you have more pe- and you have more people on the Tom Rash official yeah, page as well. Exactly. Yeah. But also just to kind of, you know, do like little where if it'll have a little online shop if people want to purchase. Because I, I mean, I do all that stuff. I design T-shirt logos for selling my IPs. And, and like I said, the other one, Salem Tusk, which, uh, is, is, uh, kind of in development. We've been working on that. It's, it's my second big character and that's with Bishop Stevens. He's actually filming a movie right now with Tara Reid. Uh, it's a vampire movie, but that one is like my pulp Indiana Jones, Doc Savage character. He's an African-American partially based, inspired a little bit by Saber. Do you remember the book Saber? Don yep. McGregor yeah, kind yes. of by that and, you know, and, and other characters. And, um, so him and I became friends through Facebook and a group. And like I said, he's been on The Walking Dead. He's been on Chicago PD. He's, he was a WWE wrestler. So him and I are also working together currently to also get this other. So there's tons of pictures of him as that character with my drawings, et cetera. And then a few of the other ones that I kind of announced down the road here. Awesome. Well, thank you again for joining us. Um, thank you, guys. It, it was a blast. Uh, so hey, Thursday, if you would, please. All wrapped up here, sir. Will there be anything else? No, just time to go dark. As always, gentlemen, a great pleasure watching you work.